Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to a new Redefining Technology podcast. Standing on two feet, having dexterous hands, developing a language that allows us to communicate, and the ability to understand abstract concepts. These are all part of the equation of humanity. Still, it is the capacity to create tools and advance the technology that has allowed us to thrive on this planet and maybe on others. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. And here we go. I'm flying solo again today. Uh, Sean is, uh, I don't know, I think he's trying to avoid me. Well, I'll have to figure out what the, that, the reason is. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Everything is okay. And uh, uh, we are here on the channel that we call Redefining Technology. And uh, we're talking about a book today with the author of the book. And uh, go figure, it's about technology. So we always have this assumption and, and the core of this channel is really about talking about technology, where it comes from, and we believe it comes from us as humans, but uh, how do we use it, right? Are we serving then the thing that we create or we are doing a technology that is actually serving the purpose to improve our quality of life and well-being and, uh, and so forth? And so when I saw this book, uh, was a post uh, on a, the ch- I think on LinkedIn of uh, a guest that we had not too long ago, Carissa Velis, we t- she talked about taking back uh, the privacy and the data. And that was a fantastic conversation. So if this is even close to follow that, uh, I'm excited to have it. And um, without further ado, we have Stephanie Hare here, and she wrote a book that is called Technology is Not Neutral. And she says a short guide to technology ethics. And I'm wondering how do you make a short guy when you talk about ethics, because there's so much to talk about. So we're going to learn these and so much more directly from the author. So Stephanie, welcome. Thank you. Let's start with uh, a little introduction about yourself before we get into the book, who you are and uh, probably why you decided to write this book. Sure. Um, My name is Stephanie Hare, and I am a researcher and broadcaster and author of Technology is Not Neutral, A Short Guide to Technology Ethics. Um, I live in the United Kingdom, but I was born and raised in the United States. So I have a slightly transatlantic accent and perspective on many affairs, uh, world affairs and technology affairs. I also did my 
graduate work on history, specifically French history. So I'm very interested in France and keep a close eye on the European Union, which I covered as a political risk analyst for five years. So I've worked in technology and political risk. Now I'm mainly doing research um, for clients that I pick, government and private sector clients. And then I write op-eds in newspapers and I've got a regular radio broadcast on the BBC World Service about the world of work. You definitely have a very radiophonic voice. And we were <laughs> talking before we started this on how much we both love radio. So I think we're pretty comfortable on this. Uh, I would like to, I want to start from the beginning. When you look at a book, you, you look at the cover. You don't want to judge it by the cover, that's for sure. But I find it interesting. I, I, I work a lot in advertising and design. And uh, so I, I there is a... A little devil is red and black, and there is a phone with the eye that is also the, the lens of the camera. I don't know if a few people listening to the podcast can picture this. Uh, let's start with that. that, that I think the, it packs a lot of meaning right there. Yeah, the, I got very, very lucky that the artist who designed the cover is an artist named Noma Barr. And he does fantastic covers for The Economist and The New Yorker. And he's done writers like Margaret Atwood and Murakami. And I had been a fan of his for ages and then was lucky, lucky enough to meet him um, just as I was starting the book. And he did a presentation about his work. And I saw what he was doing visually, where he plays with double and even triple meanings of images. And he uses negative space. So it's not just the image, it's what's happening around the image. Um, it's a real trick on your mind. His images reward a second or third glance or a deep, long glance. And then you usually find yourself laughing because he's quite playful. And all of those things, I thought, this artist is doing visually what I'm trying to do with my words in the text of the book, to be really playful and make you think and be provocative. So Luckily, he agreed to do the cover, and he was very patient because the book took a little bit longer due to the pandemic, uh, but we got there in the end. And what is really fun is that the front cover has a sort of very human-looking figure, but he does have, he, he, she, it's a neutral person, <laughs> someone with short hair, has little devil horns and is looking through their camera. So one of the eyes is also the camera lens. And so it's really, you know, those eyes grab you because it's really humanizing. And then on the back of the book, the back cover is the exact same image. It's a mirror image, but it's an angel. So it has a little halo. And that was just being playful because the title of the book is Technology is Not Neutral, which I was hoping would make you go, well, then what is it? And if you have the, you know, the original image of you know, <laughs> Satan <laughs> or the angels, um, you know, each one of us has our our negative and our positive. And that's a theme that runs throughout the entire book with each tool and technology we create. There's a positive and a negative, a pro and a con, and you have to weigh it up every time. Yeah. It, and like I said at the beginning, it, there is even more, and I don't know if this, I'm, I'm assuming is intentional, but it's also you're looking at the world through the lens of technology. So yeah. that eyes <laughs> that is it's going through the camera of the phone. I, it, again, it, it's very, very meaningful. Uh, 
So I, I was joking at the beginning, uh, Stephanie, about the fact that how do you write a short guide when you talk about technology ethics? Because we talk about technology ethics uh, a lot, and it's a never-ending conversation. So um, you kind of said what already what the core is is kind of like you have you have to look at both sides. Um, so why did you feel really the need um, during the pandemic? I don't know when you started with the idea to write this book, but the why, right? What, what really drove you? Well, there were a number of things. Um, I started this book a year before the pandemic in 2019. And then when the pandemic hit, I had a sort of, I don't want to say existential crisis, that's probably too much, but a writerly crisis where I thought, you know, does the world need this book? Um, you know, there's so much going on and it was really scary and so much uncertainty. And then I was, because I was living in the United Kingdom, I watched as the UK got off the ground really quickly with wanting to try to build different types of pandemic health tools to help notify if you'd been exposed to the virus and then eventually what would become vaccine passports. So I thought, hmm, this is a chance, very irresistible opportunity for any researcher to do live social sciences research you know, in real time. No idea how it's going to play out, form some hypotheses, Obviously, I had to clear that with the publisher who was like, oh, this is going to take a little bit longer than we had thought because I wasn't really sure when to end it. And we ended up ending it. I think I touched the text last on the 15th of December 2020, which was right after England became the last of the four United Kingdom devolved nations to vote to approve and indeed require vaccine passports for domestic use. So I closed a two-year case study with that. And, you know, we sent it off to press and now it's out, which is just incredible in publishing. Normally, it, you know, you would have to stop typing six months probably before, if not longer, a book goes to press. So it's really cutting edge in one sense with the case studies. But the philosophy side is something that I hope will be more eternal. The framework, the philosophical framework that you can apply to any problem really, but in this case of this book, technology problems, really should outlast anything that's in this book. My joy would be if the two case studies eventually become irrelevant because we solved them <laughs> and we moved on to more interesting problems. And I really felt the need for that because a book like this didn't exist when I started working in technology at the turn of the century, <laughs> which sounds really old, during the dot-com era. Um, I was just sort of released into the economy as a new graduate and allowed to do things that I probably really shouldn't have been allowed to do, that none of us should have been without more training in this area. But the framework was so different then. And it really started to change, I think, in popular culture, in terms of the media awareness and just everyday people on the street. I think around 2016, when people saw how Facebook had been so grossly negligent with people's data and it was used in weaponized in elections and the Brexit referendum here. Suddenly technology ethics was on everybody's radar, if you will. And I, I was still working deeply working within technology companies, but I started doing my own thinking and questioning and thinking, well, if, if I were to have something, what would I want it to look like? You know, it was, it was, a, it became a design problem, if nothing else. What, what's the guidebook I wish I had 
even right now, I mean, not just for when I started, even now as a sort of 20 year um, professional, I still need to be learning all the time. So I wrote it almost from first principles. I mean, I agree with everything. I mean, I, I, I was thrown in there myself and it was a time where like, hey, technology got blinking light. That got to be cool. Ah, internet, IoT, and you know, and then once you start getting into cybersecurity, you realize even more how everything rush was. Like, you know, it's never the secure by design. It's it's actually a design that applies security later on. And I feel same thing we do with privacy. That was part of the conversation with Carissa. And I feel what you're talking about right now, it, it's as important as existential as anything else when I say, let, let's start with the ethics, which I, I, I agree with you. It's going to be a never-ending conversation, but we need to do that. We see that with the artificial intelligence now where we are really, the European community in particular, with the Artificial Intelligence, intelligence Ethic Act to really push towards that. But in the everyday life, without artificial intelligence, what, what are the main things that you're focusing on the book? I mean, you mentioned the pandemic and the tracking. You mentioned social media and, uh, and the whole news manipulation. Um, what else? I mean, how is it affecting the everyday people, the misuse of technology? Well, I mean... In a way, that's both like the joy of this book and the absolute hell, <laughs> which is that. Uh, that's why you have an angel and that's a That's why it's an angel and a double. I'm like, oh my God, this will be my like fate for the rest of my life is to work <laughs> on this problem that has no end. Um, you know, where do you even want to start? So you could be looking at things from a climate and sustainability perspective. So we're seeing the rise of something called ESG, so environment, social governance for investing concerns for pensions portfolios, for instance, um, and just sustainability practices throughout your entire cycle from end to end, from the minute you start working on an idea to the moment you release a product or service onto the market, or even just how you update and change your working practices. Ethics has a, a new salience and resonance, I think, in 2022 than perhaps it's done in other times in history. And then there's even things like how we're training the next generation. So you're looking at questions like digital literacy for children. I'm talking as early as age five, you know, because they're online, they're being exposed to pornography, they're being tracked. Um, it doesn't really matter that there are laws on the statute books that are in theory supposed to protect them if they're under the age of 13, it's not working. You know, how do parents deal with this? How do teachers deal with this? What can lawmakers really do, given how long it takes to pass a law? Um, we have regulators, but they're usually quite toothless. So what's the role of regulation in this if regulation doesn't really work? And then you start looking at you know, your more advanced students. It might be end of high school or anything that's post-high school. And I don't just want to limit that to university. There are so many different ways to work in technology. Um, really fantastic entry points. And so I was thinking about all of those people who are coming out now, absolute digital natives. They've never known anything else. Whereas I, because of my age, <laughs> I, I spent the first 18 years of my life completely offline. You know, I know a different reality than these 18 year olds do. And so working together with them is quite fun because I think sometimes we're like two people on you know same planet, different worlds. <laughs> when you can bring us together and, and do beautiful things. 
So talking to them as well about how they're thinking about artificial intelligence or concepts of informed consent. So to give a practical example, you have something called facial recognition technology, which is really mushrooming all over the world. And here in the United Kingdom, you know, we're one of the most surveyed societies. We're a liberal democracy. You don't have to be an authoritarian regime to really go big on surveillance of citizens um, because we live it right here. And trying to figure out that question of, well, where do you draw the line? Do you want the police to have this tech? Do you want private sector companies to have it? Where would you say you can't have it? Is it in schools? Because we've started using it to have children pay for their school lunches, right? So when parents found out about that and civil liberties groups made a big fuss and it made it into the media, there was a sort of voluntary pause, but it could be st- it could be restarted at any time. There's nothing stopping it. There's no legal protection for kids. So now we're like, well, maybe we should draw the line with children under the age of 18 and we should draw the line at school. (laughs) No facial recognition in school. Like there are other ways to pay for lunch. Let's just take that one off the menu. So it's really that kind of critical framework. And I wanted to bring philosophy back into it because so many countries around the world have sort of dropped philosophy from their education curriculum. You know, it might not be something that you touch until university if you go. And even then you might only do one class unless you're specializing in philosophy. If you are born and raised in France, you'll do a lot more because France really values philosophy and has embedded it in its high school curriculum and a little bit into university. But it's not, you know, certainly growing up in the United States, I never knowingly studied philosophy. (laughs) And even here in the UK, um, you know, I have a doctor of philosophy and yet never had taken a philosophy class right? So I was able to do three degrees and never was required to take a philosophy class, which to me now seems insane. That's pretty philosophical point right there. Why? <laughs> but we're not, we're not going to go there. You know, I, I, I think, I agree. I think philosophy is coming back strong because ethics are coming back strong and we're looking at all these things. And I, I did my, my study in my school in Italy and I have studied philosophy in, uh, in high school. And then going into political science then you know political philosophers and and all of that and it's it's at the core of all my conversation about everything so uh, i mean that's that's a big thing and and here's the let, let's do the philosophical question so in a way if if technology is not neutral and we know that we are the one creating it so and we can create it balance between right, in the middle Who's controlling it? I mean, you, you you mentioned power. I mean, sure. That's. Can you elaborate that? Yeah. So I look at that in a number of ways. Um, so there's the six branches of philosophy and the question of power I would have put in the like political philosophy branch. And so in that case, that's where, you know, when you say, where do you draw the line? You'd say, well, hang on, who is drawing the line? Who decides when we've crossed the line? And then who decides what we do about it? Like who can enforce, you know, an over the line decision. And that's where it starts to get very interesting in terms of, let's just pick a couple of metrics. So like you could look at um, the gender composition of teams, right? So most people who are working in technology at the moment on this planet are men. And yet women actually make up more of the population than men. So there's there's an asymmetry of like who's on the team's who's funding the teams, right? So when we look at who gets access to funding, it's largely men funding other men to then go and build 
this stuff, but women use the technology and they're definitely on the receiving end of it. So they're being cut out of a certain process. And obviously this even goes back further in the talent pipeline of who's studying for postgraduate qualifications or graduate or high school. You know, the classes that you start to take once you're allowed to make choices as a teenager start to um, self-select or through pressure select along gender lines. And so that's something that you have to actually work really early when kids are younger. And you also have to work with parents and teachers who might be bringing in bias and pushing their kids into certain things and you know, away from others just because they don't maybe themselves know what kind of careers are possible if their child studies a certain subject. So there's that. But then you could also look at it along geographical lines. So if you look at the top technology companies in the world by market capitalization, for instance, the majority are going to be American and Chinese, right? But people all over the world are going to be using those products and services. But the values that are infused by the people creating it, legislating it, regulating it, etc., are actually coming from a really small, quite unrepresentative population. So that's just like one really quick tour de force. And there's many, many more in the book um, to help kind of play with that question of power and to say like, you know, we all create technology. That's, that right there isn't true. Most of us don't create technology. We do use it and we all experience it being used on us, right? So even parsing it that way where we can get really nuanced and fine and shade it helps us to see who has power and who doesn't who is included and who is excluded in these discussions. Yeah, it's a big question because we all use it. And the problem, again, is that sometimes we don't know what what is doing to us, you know, data collection. You want to know how to get from point A to point B on the map? Well, I got to give you my location. And with yeah. my location, I'm going to give you a lot of other things. And I feel, and I don't know if you agree, but I feel like the user doesn't have to say about it because most of the time he's not educated about it. Uh, the company, I feel like they're trying to do everything they can to not educate. I mean, stuff comes without a manual. And I mean, I I remember when I used to look at the manual to build a, 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 a hi-fi system back in the day that, where that was technology, right? And And now it's like, here's your phone, just go ahead and use it. And what does in the background we don't know and mm. and i don't know what's your thought on that but i i connected to social cultural difference as well and and i think that you mentioned before we start talking that you're looking at things from a very british perspective can you can you elaborate that and and you know why is it relevant for yeah for the reader so I was really interested in this question of positionality. So positionality is literally like, where do you, where do you stand existentially? So, you know, my positionality might be, I'm a woman, I'm in my forties, I'm born in the United States, but living in the United Kingdom, I'm right-handed. You know, we could go on and on and on about, about sort of where, how do you engage with the world? Being right-handed, by the way, is like not a joke. I actually grew up in a family with all left-handed people and they have totally different tools. So as a child, I thought that I was really bad with tools. I couldn't use the scissors, it hurt my hands. Um, I would get really, really frustrated. And it was only when I went to kindergarten <laughs> and learned that I was the normal one. It was my family who were freaks. I tease them about this now, but you know, <laughs> they, 
<laughs> statistically Honestly. really un unlikely to be an entire family of lefties except for one. Um, but instantly I was like, oh, wow, that was like a great moment, very early education of learning about default options. You know, default tech is actually usually built in terms of tools for right-handed people and it drives left-handed people nuts. And I can empathize with that because I had the opposite yeah. experience. So seeing things from a different point of view when you're an expat, as you know, and you're working in language not your own or with cultural traditions that are not your own, I think gives you a really interesting insight and perspective. And so I really wanted to capture that in the book because I have so many books that I've had to read for this. I mean, the bibliography is immense for anybody who wants it. It's on my website. So many of them focus on technology from an American perspective unless they go really specialist and then they might do like US China tech cold war you know the China, rise of china but i just thought this is a global problem how do i add a more global perspective so i wanted to definitely you can't not talk about the united states but i wanted to broaden it out and make a little bridge over the atlantic to europe and look at the european union in some ang angles Definitely had to look at China because, again, you you just have to. It's so so important. And then there's this weird little island in the North Atlantic, in the North, the North Sea, called the United Kingdom, which is doing some really interesting stuff and is such a fascinating, weird little place to live because it was in the European Union. It recently ruptured big time and left in 2016. We fully Brexited during the pandemic in 2020. And yet it also has this very close relationship with the United States, but it's also really different. And then there's the like education system is very different here. The tradition of cybersecurity and cryptography and artificial intelligence. I mean, you really have to know about what's happening in the United Kingdom. And also the fact that it's a liberal democracy that has such a high tolerance for surveillance with the facial recognition and it also doesn't require identification. You don't have to carry an ID card, yet one of its responses during the pandemic was to introduce a vaccine passport for domestic use, which became a, a stealth ID card. So there was just so much to play with here that I thought would make a new set of case studies and new things to riff on. Sometimes when you look at somebody else's country, it makes you think about your own. So I'm hoping that even people who aren't from the United Kingdom will read those case studies and go, well, how does this compare to where I'm from in Germany or Italy or Canada or Australia or you know, Peru? Do you have any example on how, though, you? because what has come in my head is technology with the internet, as much as you can try to do firewalls and have your own internet like China does, and it's still going to be very global. I mean, we know that and we, we pay the consequences on, on a lot of things and we take advantage of a lot of things. So how can we have this uh, global village, I'm going to bring McLuhan in the conversation, but still retain our individuality and, and what is important for us? Because that, for me, that's a really big question because we try to uniform everything like, oh, here's, here's your iPhone but you're pointing out there are differences. So how can we balance that? I mean, that's a, that's a tough one. There are countries that are managing to fence off their internet. I mean, we're talking today with the invasion of the Ukraine by 
the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Mm. And Russia has been a really successful example of what it's like to really censor its people. So its people don't necessarily have access to the same information that the rest of the world has in this present conflict. You've mentioned China. That's a great example. North Korea, I think, is another. Cuba. Um, and potentially, uh, I think Iran would probably fall in that category as well. People who've, who've done a pretty good job fencing stuff off. And that's a way of controlling the population. You know, when we say knowledge is power, uh, Francis Bacon was onto something there. So there's that. Then there's like what you're talking about of like the, the homogenization of the technological experience of, you know, iPhones being around the world or Androids. Um, just the fact that most homes in the developed world would want to have broadband, for instance, they would consider that just being normal. Obviously that's not true everywhere. Um, what is considered a luxury tool versus, you know, a must have versus a nice to have versus that's just not, that's just not even on the radar, you know, I so, want that. That, that yeah, so I'm not, I'm not sure. I would say that I think we're completely flattening it out just because I think the, the socioeconomic and political differences on this planet are still so extreme. That said, I take the point, you know, when you, if you travel to certain cities and maybe it's more of an urban thing, actually, if you were to travel from city to city to city, you really are going to see a lot of the same shops and experiences, and you'll have the same expectations when you go to a certain type of hotel, for instance. Um, you know, so if you're traveling in, in a business class life, perhaps perhaps it does start to feel quite homogenous. Um, but if you're not, if you're trying to be a student, or if you are, you know, one of the the global workers who are just really grinding it out and trying to get by, I think there's still quite a lot of disparity. Yeah. A lot to think about. Let me let me ask you this: Who who did you write this book for? Who is your audience? So, on the one hand, I would love for this book to work for everyone on some level, and I truly mean that. I think that if you were a lawmaker or a regulator or a tech CEO or the leader of a venture capital firm, that you would get something I hope very useful out of this book. But I also really have in mind parents teachers, journalists who are learning, you know, and, and doing great work as well to cover technology in a way that's more beneficial for society. But my dream audience, if I could only hit one constituency would actually be younger people. Um, and by that, I mean, sort of teens up to, you know, people in their twenties who are starting out in their careers, because I have so much sympathy for them. I really do remember what that phase of life was like for myself and my friends and how challenging it is. And we just, we didn't have a book like this and we didn't have this kind of framework and thinking. So what I was really hoping to do, you know, if I, during the writing the pandemic, I had sometimes dramatic days when things would seem pretty grim where I was like, you know, if I'm handing the baton over, if I were to never talk about technology again or work on technology again, for whatever reason, I'm passing this one on. This is the sum of all of the reading I've done all of the conferences and lectures I've gone to, the panels I've sat on, all the people I've interviewed, um, I've packaged it up in a way that I hope is really user-friendly. And my goal isn't to get anybody to agree with me. My goal is simply to spark certain conversations that if you go through it on your own, if you read it or chat about it, you will come up with answers for yourself 
in your situation that will be useful and clarifying for you. Um, luckily I'm still here post pandemic and, and I can hopefully hear from people as they start working through those things and they can tell me, you know, what their ideas are, what they think are missing. Um, like any technologist, I'm like, this is just version 1.0. <laughs> we may do more. Um, but I wanted to put out something, you know, minimum viable product, something to get people started. That was like, if you just got thrown into a job that involves technology in some way, or if you're just trying to figure out the role of tech in your life, this should get you started. And then when you get to a more advanced level, you know, off you go, but at least you've got this to cover your basics. So I wish I knew back then what I know now, right? <laughs> so it, it sounds like it's a, it's a conversation starter, something to make you think. And, and that's, that's exactly what I like to do with my podcast is I don't have answers, honestly. I mean, this, this is a never answer things. It's, it's more like, well, if I made you think, uh, it's a successful conversation. Yeah. You mentioned, though, that uh, um, the data, which is something that we could go in there, like the intangible technology that people maybe don't figure out. Maybe that's why cybersecurity is so difficult to explain. Mm. But the other thing is that you said, and maybe you can connect the two things because you mentioned it's a, it's pretty visual as a book. Mm. That, and and, uh, and you, you have data visualization and you also said that it keeps changing. That's, that's the thing. How, how often will you have to update this book mm. <laughs> and, and what is the plan for it? Uh, yeah. So while I was writing the book, I have a really weird writing process, which is I will often get images or a feeling it's very intuitive. And then I have to translate it into words, which is really weird maybe for a writer, but I've worked with a lot of artists and I work particularly with a graphic artist for this book named Jeremy Smith, who I've done data visualizations with for years where we would, we would um, translate political risk analysis into a visual. So that's if somebody just could look at one picture with very little text, actually just with one picture, they could tell a story so that was a challenge I set us for the pandemic digital health tools chapters. I was like, let's make the ultimate data viz. I want one slide that if we could submit it to the United Kingdom's parliamentary inquiry on the pandemic with no text, we just blow up the slide. And then I go on the floor of the House of Commons and have to explain all of the different tech that we tried and say which ones worked and which ones did not because the goal really is, you know, what do we need for our pandemic preparedness plan, right? Going forward, we need to have learned from this. How can I explain that in a picture for, you know, 650 totally stressed out members of parliament who do not have time to read a book. They're working on 8 million other things. Um, you know, we know these people, they're exhausted and, and hard pressed. How do I give them a picture? So how do I make it easy for them to do the analysis? And so in that case, that chapter, which is very cutting edge right now, will I hope one day be a case study for future public health workers and technologists in case we ever have a public health crisis again, they can turn to look at that chapter and see the detail for people who like the detail, or they could literally just look at that one picture and do their analysis. So in that case, the role of data is um, very deliberate. Data viz is very deliberate. In the other cases, it was more using maps. Not everybody knows the United Kingdom very well. So you put a map in there and you show 
all of the different partnerships between Amazon Ring and the British police. Now, I could spend pages describing that. Or I could write to the Sunday Times, as I did, and say, you guys did this report. I would love to give it a platform and show it. Is there a way that we can use your data with your permission and create this map and put it out there? Because then when you look at the map, you're like, Jesus Christ, it's clearly very heavily in England. It's very heavily in the Southeast of England. It's really heavy in London, but not only. And isn't that interesting when you look at the map of facial recognition throughout the United Kingdom, Scotland has made a very different decision than England. The Scottish police have voluntarily decided not to use it because they think it's a human rights risk. Whereas the English police, and particularly, again, the London Met, has integrated into its permanent operations. You're like, whoa, 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 my experience of policing and privacy and civil liberties now depends on where I live. Those are supposed to be national protected rights, if not international protected rights. But it's a great way of showing that something has gone very badly wrong in this liberal democracy, just with a picture. You know, it really does say a thousand words. So I think there's something quite fun. We got really lucky that um, Randall Monroe, who's the artist who does the XKCD comic, allowed us to very generously use two of his comics, one of which was showing when a person has to click on a captcha to prove that they're not a robot, as we all have to go through. Um, He does it in a really funny way. And then he did one that I thought was just brilliant on how the First Amendment works in the United States, because that is routinely misinterpreted. There's, you know, even right now, I guarantee you, someone somewhere is arguing on social media about their First Amendment rights being violated in a way that's not actually accurate. Um, he, he explains it in a way that is really funny, really compassionate. And I link it straight to the role of different social media companies shutting down then President Donald J. Trump after his role in inciting an insurrection. So, you know, we use the pictures and the data viz a lot to link into both current affairs, history, and to make the book something that's really contemporary, but will one day, I hope, be a work of history. I trained as an historian, so I wrote this book with that goal in mind. I, I really hope that in 20 to 30 years time, there might be some technologists or as I say, public health officials who might come back to this for whatever their challenges that they're facing, just to see what we were all doing in 2020 to 2022. I love that because we, we need to look at these things as as we do with everything in the past. It, if, if I go and, and read or listen to a book written in the 1800, I get a picture of what was happening there. Not only the style, it's it's extremely <laughs> it's kind of boring, but you know, um, at the same time, you're like, yeah, this is how they were living life, what they were thinking back then. But yeah. back then, that was the, the, the lifestyle that they had. So you can take this as a picture in time and, and go back. We always think like we're the most advanced, but then future comes. So yeah. I, I love this. And I'm kind of, I'm much of a, more of a, um, audible kind of guy lately because I can consume more while I walk the dogs mm. <laughs> even cook dinner but the the way you presented it with this visual it kind of makes me want to read this book and look at these images so is it going to be a challenge when you put this in an audiobook version is it coming well, so I, I literally have just finished recording the audiobook okay. um, which is why I'm a bit sounding like Yoda today I apologize <laughs> for that really really sore tired voice um so what we did we made a call on that because I thought oh, 
this is a bit of a disaster, but good. Again, as a technologist, I was like taking notes. I was like, note this for the next book this is really important. If you are thinking about concepts of accessibility and inclusivity, you think about all sorts of things from, you know, the type of sentences that you write. Are they short? Are you using words that people can understand? Are you using logic so they can easily follow from one idea to another? If you're going to bring in maps, that's great because then people now know what we're talking about if they're not familiar with the country. If you want to do data viz, how do you do data viz in a way that's really simple and like doesn't need you to be personally there to explain it? It should be self-explanatory. Fine. All of that was fine. And then you go to record an audiobook and you're like, oh God, what do I do when we get to the map? Do I do I explain Britain? And so we what we ended up doing was I thought that that would end up becoming annoying because I'm reading and there's a really clear narrative flow. And then I would have stopped and been like, so now, you know, like almost when a teacher interrupts their lecture and goes off on a bit of a tangent, sometimes that can work. But if you're having to do it all the time, I think it could become quite tiresome. So what we did was just not read the, the maps and the data viz. They're just not there. So I think that works narratively because I wrote it, thank God, in such a way that the visuals are like an enhancement. You know, they're a feature-rich factor. Um, and thank God, the text stands on its own and you can get the full experience of the book through the audio experience. But I think for people for whom visual is really useful or important, and there's a whole crew of people out there who are like that, and I'm one of them, um, having the visual ebook or hard copy of the book could be an enhancement. So it's just, it's about knowing yourself, I think, as a reader and also what you're trying to get out of it. You know, you might want to be listening to it while walking the dog because otherwise you're just not going to get to this book. So if that's the only way we can get you that content, then that's the, that's the best way for you. For some other people, you know, who are young students, they might be studying this on their course, I hope. Um, they might need it because they might have to critique it and be like, you know, Hair in her map on page 154 is wrong for the following reasons. <laughs> I look forward to being torn apart in undergraduate essays or high school essays. Um, for them, they you know, they might have a different purpose. So it's about recognizing that different readers have different needs. Yeah. Until we get uh, augmented reality glasses, whereas I listen, I, you would just pop the, the visual in, in front of my lenses. I know. I'm, I need the technology to catch up with our ideas, man. <laughs> we're we're there. That before. <laughs> we're there. It's a matter of then what else is going to capture as it's showing me the map as I walk, right? So. <laughs> I think we're going to go uh, full circle back to every technology is good and every technology is is bad. So how do we how do we do it in a way that we can draw a line? Yeah. I had a lot of fun. If you would like to add a, your own final pitch for the book, feel free to do that. But of course, there will be a link to. I'm assuming the best way will be to send people to your website so they can yeah. learn more about you and and all the the resources that you use for the book. They can actually look at the beautiful cover as well. And um, yeah, so uh, go for it. Who should read your book? I mean, oh gosh. I would say that this book is for anyone who's looking to understand the role of technology in our lives, past, present, and future. It is written um, sympathetically for you as the reader. It's, you know, it's a short guide because who has the time for a long one right now? Mm -hmm. But it'll get you it'll get you going to where you need to go. And if you want to take it further, 
the full bibliography that I've got on my website is, you know, the next advanced level. Perfect. Know your technology. I think that's that's the message here, and yeah. uh, and be critic about it too. Stephanie, thank you so so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope there will be many more, and uh, and I'm sure we didn't touch everything that we're supposed to. But uh, maybe once I read the book, uh, we can talk again. I would love that, <laughs> and I'd love to hear any feedback from listeners as well. Please find awesome. me however you however you, you see that. I'm on Twitter at at hair underscore brain. You can reach me on LinkedIn. And we'll, we'll put those links. We'll put those links in the notes for the podcast as well. So Super. hopefully, you'll uh, people will get in touch with you. I would love to hear from you. Thank you again, and for everybody else, uh, stay tuned. And uh, there will be many more episodes where we talk about technology, and uh, it's never ending. So we're not going to run out of topics. Thanks for sure. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Technology Podcast. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.